There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. There sure is a lot of nasty stuff going on in our country. I read a great piece by Victor Davis Hanson. you got to love this guy. He really speaks with intelligence, but also with great passion. And that, of course, for me, is the secret to great listening. And he was talking in an article recently about how the decline in American life, you can actually evaluate it by comparing it to societies that existed in the past and, of course, contemporary societies that exist still today. It's not good news for Americans, I can tell you that. About 80% of the so-called first world countries, the ones that are in Europe and in the Middle East and in most of uh, the major capitals and large cities, whether you're talking about Berlin or you're talking about Madrid or Prague or Amsterdam or Warsaw or Rome or even London or even Budapest and Brussels, as well as all the first, second and third world non-European cities like Algiers and Baghdad and Beirut and Damascus and even Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and Tripoli. If you look at the last 40 years, you've seen that these particular cities have suffered enormously. Victor Davis Hansen actually had major surgeries in some of those cities and stayed in pretty mediocre or even bad areas. He lived abroad for nearly three years and traveled everywhere. He visited Iraq twice during the 2006-2007 surge. He was in Israel during the worst of the suicide bombings. He even lived in Athens during the 1973 coup and the 1974 war in Cyprus, and he visited for two weeks in Egypt right after the Yom Kippur War. He's seen it all firsthand, and he's seen what toxic dictators like Gaddafi or the people who run the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, he's seen what's happened to Turkey under Erdogan and basically all the incompetence of the socialists in Europe. But he never saw, even in the slums of old Cairo or in the worst parts of Naples or Brussels or even in the middle of poverty in the 1970s in rural Turkey, nothing like what he sees in San Francisco this year and actually last year as well. The undressed people lying around on Market Street and right there in Union Square that are routinely smoking dope and shooting up and, and defecating right on the streets. And this is pre-civilized behavior. The homeless enclaves of Los Angeles are even worse. Were these the scenes that were being filmed for shows like The Last of Us? 
Or was this really happening in all these major American cities? Beautiful office buildings that are empty, stores that are closed. And I don't even think in the dark days of the Iraq surge, he saw anything like smash and grab or carjacking to the extent of what goes on every single day in major cities. He said he wore body armor when he was in Iraq every day and evening when he was on patrols with a bunch of soldiers, and he felt a lot safer there in body armor than he would after hours on weekends in Detroit or Chicago or Baltimore or even Memphis. He said he was operated on for a ruptured appendix and peritonitis on a wooden table with only an ether fix in Gaddafi's Libya, and he still felt the third world clinic care in terms of the clientele and fellow patients was less scary than what he witnesses in ER rooms in California. He said he used to define America as hyper-civilized because it was a place where people were courteous to one another, where drivers exhibited professionalism, not far behind those in the UK and Australia and Canada, but not anymore. The way it looks on the Fresno Bee is a recitation of high-speed reeks and wrecks and carjackings and DUIs and hit-and-run smash-ups. And when you drive rural roads in Central California, you can fully well expect that one out of five cars that are coming in the opposite direction will drift into your lane, either due to being stoned or unfamiliar with U.S. traffic laws. 27% of Californians were not born in the USA. Or maybe it's the drug euphoria and the intoxication, or maybe they're texting. Whatever it is, it's a mess out there. And these are major American cities. He says if you walk in downtown Manhattan or midtown New York or in uh, D.C. or Seattle, it stinks. It smells worse than any place in Beirut or even in the harbor promenade in Alexandria. He said he's more likely to be accosted by an obnoxious stranger or a homeless person or a would-be criminal in downtown L.A. or in San Francisco or Portland than he is in Brussels or Naples. And that's saying something, given they were pretty disastrous for the last two decades. I do not think in Paris or Amman, people walk into stores, rob them, and walk out with impunity, with the knowledge of that the clerks would be fired if they even reported their thefts. He was talking about when he drives in California, and I just had this experience recently, and he looks at all the trailers and all of the shacks and then these sort of compounds of people living in these ad hoc shelters with Romex wire and water hoses attached to some small farmhouse. And he thinks this poverty is much more like a third world scene than any that he can remember in some pretty third world countries. Or for that matter, the countryside of northern Mexico seems less impoverished than life outside of San Joaquin or, or Orange Cove or, or Parlor, California. You'd probably be better off taking your chances walking at night in Kuwait City than you would walking at night in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And you probably would find a public restroom on California's I-5 or the 99 dirtier than a public restroom anywhere in rural Greece. So he was talking about students that he had met in rural Greece who were better educated than kids the same age in California. Spaniards in the countryside know more about America than American teens in New York or in Philadelphia.
And Japanese or Kuwaiti exchange students, far better educated than most of the California State University students. And that's pretty scary. Chinese students are afraid to drive alone into most areas of Los Angeles after hours. And they come from a communist country where driving alone could end up putting you in a political prison. So what's the point of all this? Well, the point is that the very basic parts of life, especially in our major cities, whether you're talking about healthcare or you're talking about cleanliness or safety, have reached medieval proportions. And that's a very different America than the one I grew up in. A sophisticated, successful suburban America that was what I saw in the 1970s and even in the 1980s, and uh, it was better than anything in Europe at that time. Now all of these places are a disaster. And then, of course, there are the red state rural country towns and small towns that are likewise a little bit more civilized still to this day. But in a third of America, in parts of the suburbs that surround the major cities and the core of almost every major city in America today, life is actually third or even fourth world. The ERs are dirty and they're broke and they mostly exist to attend to uh, gunshot wounds and all kinds of inner city violence. Garbage is piled up on sidewalks around cans that are overflowing in bins. It is really hard to figure out whether the smell of marijuana is stronger or the smell of human poop is stronger. And if you lose your wallet in a foreign country, it'll be returned to you probably in less than two hours, right? You can lose your glasses or your wallet or your cell phone in uh, Selma, California, and they won't be returned. Not, forget about within hours, but uh, you'll see thefts on your credit cards within moments. If your car used to break down on the side of a freeway, you would prefer these days that it would happen to you in Israel or Germany or even Portugal than happen in California. There are more broken appliances and wet garbage tossed along the roads of Fresno County than there are in Italy. And none of that was true just 20 years ago. Anybody who is talking to a teenager or a 20-something person today, you can assume that they're poorly educated and they know almost nothing about their own country. They don't know anything about Gettysburg or World War I, or they don't know what the Supreme Court does. And they're programmed to just have these ideas about diversity and equity and inclusion and all of these other pathologies that we have now incorporated into our daily life here in America. And Victor Davis Hanson said it most clearly in his recent article, ignorance and arrogance are a fatal combination, especially when they're combined with a therapeutic society that doesn't care one whit about meritocracy and feels like social acceptance and career advantage are only found if you trash your own culture. What is the reason for this? Why a decay that's so rapid that it almost seems fantasy-like? You can watch television programs where everything looks like a Mad Max, only it's actually what's really going on around us. How did the slow erosion start accelerating and produce a country that's totally unrecognizable to anybody my age in which nothing is reliable and nothing is secure and nothing is predictable anymore? You know, one of the other signs of any decline in a society is when you politicize all of its 
institutions and then go one step further and weaponize them. In decadent societies, you find that they indict their former presidents after they leave offices, and those in power actually use federal agencies to sick them on their opponents. And in turn, the bureaucrats become the people who are in power as if in like a private industry, like laptop suppression taking place or performance art raiding and arresting or even finding a presidential son's missing weapon. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Biden family may well have pulled off the greatest pay-for-play grifting scam in presidential history, one that encompassed a decade of selling access to the vice president, Joe Biden, and supposedly someday President Joe Biden. Well, that someday has arrived, and that the entire kleptocracy will only think about prosecuting a Republican administration is again proving that we're in a third world country, and it's third worldism that's so hard for us to watch. You look at the careers of guys like James Clapper and James Comey and Lois Lerner and Andrew McCabe and Lisa Page and uh, John Brennan and Christopher Ray. they were weaponized. They either lied under oath when they were asked questions or they suppressed an email trail that exposed their vulnerability, their culpability, or they worked really hard to discredit or destroy a political candidate that they opposed, or they just uh, stonewalled when they were asked under oath to be accountable. So in a third world America, guys like Matt Taibbi testify about the abuse and the politicization of federal agencies, and then they go home and find an IRS note requesting a meeting. And Alvin Bragg, who finds no actionable writ of falsifying business records to lodge against private citizen and ex-president Trump, but mysteriously does rediscover grounds for a 34 felony count indictment on the now presidential candidate, Donald Trump. Look, when the FBI shows up at a school board meeting because the teachers union prompts them to, or when Hillary Clinton destroys thousands of email records under court subpoena, or during the Roe versus Wade controversies, the FBI starts monitoring Latin mass Catholic services, or the U.S. military begins sponsoring drag queen shows on military bases, or the president and the DHS secretary condemn as guilty Border Patrol agents for some fantasy crime they made up in their heads of whipping illegal alien border crossers, those are preludes to announced investigations then we know right now, and you should know right now, that the United States has gone full Lebanon or full Brazil or full Congo. 
There used to be more accidents and crashes and chaos in the third world than in America because of an absence of meritocracy. Things break, they never get repaired, or they were crappy to begin with. You could take a taxi from an airport in Tripoli, Libya, one of the world's greatest oil exporters, and you'll hit a pothole that'll swallow your car. And then you get out of your car, and it's a little tiny Russian car, and you lift it out of the hole, and you ask the driver, how could this happen in a nation that's so blessed with oil reserves? And his answer is, we hire our first cousins, which translates to, we're a tribal people who abhor meritocracy. During the 1973 Greek dictatorship, his mother had sent Victor Davis Hanson a pair of $10 Levi's so he could have them in Athens. And when they got to customs, they were sending him a note to pick them up. And when he went to the central Athens postal customs office, he was told that he could have his Levi's for 25 bucks. So he complained to a Greek professor at the college, and she said, give them $5 along with the name of our college director, which he did. And the next day, the customs supervisor apologized, but still asked for $10, which he happily handed over. That's what it is with wokeness. The old joke that affirmative action was just desserts for the mediocre, politicized English or sociology department, but would never be applied to air traffic controllers or pilots or brain surgeons or nuclear plant operators, is no longer a joke. Non-meritocratic hiring now encompasses every profession, and just like that Libyan taxi story, you're going to see what filters down when our elite are put in positions of enormous power largely on the basis of their ideological, racial, or gender, or ethnic considerations. And if you doubt that, remember that a non-compass mentis Joe Biden is one more fall away from Kamala Harris, who was selected entirely based on her race and sex, and who seems to have a vocabulary smaller than her menu of various chuckles. Her presidency really would prove that anyone at all can be president. So we look at the Hunter Biden controversy and we look at the deep state and it looks like some people in the government were running interference on behalf of the president's sons. But some did follow the law. For Donald Trump's most dedicated fans, people like me, the latest revelations from the FBI and the IRS whistleblowers about Hunter Biden suggest a much darker force at work. You call it the deep state, you call it the bureaucracies, whatever you want to call it. This is something that functions like an invisible force behind a curtain that controls our country on behalf of this oligarch class. And if you think about that, if you connect the dots, you can see that there is a, tr a crutch, a conceptual crutch that explains our great national traumas, like who shot JFK? Who invented crack cocaine? Is there a deep state? Was 9-11 an inside job? You get the picture. This kind of deep state might be a paranoid fiction, but if you look at a more nuanced version of this concept and call it the national security state, it does in fact exist. It's a secret part of our government, and it includes these bureaucrats who are entrenched at our intelligence agencies, at the FBI, and in the military. And because of their policies, which are highly classified, it acts with zero visibility, no oversight, and no accountability. And when Donald Trump emerged on the scene in 2016, there were people in this deep state who used their power to advance the interests of his political opposition. 
At that time, it was Hillary Clinton and then Joe Biden, Obama, all of them. And the latest news from Congress on Hunter Biden really does fuel the perception that powerful parts of the government not only undermined Trump's presidency, but they dropped another bombshell. And this was about the infamous laptop scandal, the one that Hunter Biden abandoned at a computer repair shop in Delaware that has been grist for a lot of scoops before the 2020 election in the New York Post. But you'll recall, those scoops weren't as big a news story as was the fact that Facebook and Twitter banned users from sharing the story on the theory that it was the fruit of Kremlin fakery intended to sway the presidential election. Well, it turns out that the FBI officials who warned the social media companies that the laptop story might be part of a Russian scheme to mislead voters themselves, they knew, they knew that the laptop was real, and they knew it as early as December of 2019. But instead of clarifying that they had verified its contents, the Bureau instead told a lie about its provenance and allowed that lie to linger. Think about that. In an effort to counter Russian disinformation, the FBI actively allowed American disinformation to spread. So if you want to digest that, it means that the FBI conditioned social media companies to believe that the laptop was the product of a hack and dump operation and that the Bureau stopped its information sharing, allowing social media companies to conclude that the New York Post story was Russian disinformation. This is according to Jim Jordan. Jordan's a polarizing guy, no question about it. He's one of the biggest allies of people like me and Donald Trump in Congress. But in this case, he brings the receipts, right? The letter quotes extensively from an interview that the committee conducted with Laura Delmlo, the current chief of the FBI's Foreign Influence Tax Force. That's task force, rather. That FBI body that interacted with social media platforms to warn them against foreign disinformation. She explained that in one conference call with Twitter executives on the day the first New York Post laptop story ran, an executive asked if the FBI knew that the laptop was real. And some junior G-man began to answer that it was until he was cut off, and a more senior person said, we have no further comment. After the call, according to Demlo, the task force huddled to determine the new policy on whether it would confirm that the laptop had been authenticated, and the decision, which Demlaw took pains to say she didn't make, was that it would offer no comment going forward. It goes without saying, those are not good news. That's not good facts for Joe Biden and his family. The Hunter laptop is a veritable scandalabra. There are graphic photos of Hunter posing with prostitutes and crack pipes. There are emails that discuss schemes by which uh, Hunter Biden monetizes his family's name. There are references to payouts reserved for the big guy and a suggestion that the current president benefited from his son's buckraking. But as bad as the latest news is for the Bidens, it's even worse for the FBI, which has to rely on public belief, on trust, for its very survival and its power. It has destroyed that trust by allowing itself to be wielded like a weapon of one political party. Because it's not just Hunter Biden. It's also Russiagate, Trump's never-proven collusion with Russia, which was fueled 
by the Steele dossier, which the FBI knew by early in 2017, at the latest, that the whole thing was junk. But like the Russian disinformation lie about the laptop, the Bureau let the dossier falsehood linger out there while the Steele dossier was hyped like Watergate by the press and, of course, by the Democratic Party in 2017 and 2018. And then there's the double standard that the Bureau applied to pursuing foreign influence investigation into Trump's campaign and the campaign of Hillary Clinton. That was one of the primary conclusions of a report released in May from John Durham. For Trump, the FBI opened a full investigation on the thinnest of pretexts. For Clinton, the Bureau delayed investigations into political foreign influence and offered defensive briefings to her lawyers. There's a pattern here. You cannot deny that. The question raised by the latest round of disclosures about Hunter Biden is, did the DOJ and the FBI protect him because of his last name? And you got to think about the other major event that happened last week, serious allegations raised by two career IRS investigators who led the team probing Hunter's tax violations. Gary Shipley and Joseph Ziegler testified in an open session before the House Oversight Committee, and they painted a picture of a long-standing investigation that began in 2018 into Hunter Biden's income that was delayed and stopped at nearly every turn. And those delays were significant, so significant that eventually the statute of limitations ran out. Ziegler said that the probe did not follow normal procedures. Prosecutors, he said, slow walked the investigation and put in place unnecessary approvals and roadblocks, which basically kept them from efficiently and effectively even addressing the case. A lot of the times, they weren't even able to follow the facts. There were times when prosecutors informed Hunter Biden's lawyers about the steps they were taking, like a search warrant. All of that would be awful, bad enough. But the event that led Ziegler and Shapley to eventually blow the whistle was when in October of last year, the U.S. attorney in charge of the case, David Weiss, privately told them that it was not his decision to charge Hunter in districts outside of Delaware. That directly contradicted the pledge that the Attorney General Merrick Garland had made to Congress that there would be no restrictions placed on Weiss in his investigation of Hunter. Both Weiss and Merrick Garland have disputed the account of the whistleblowers, but Ziegler and Shapley are standing by their story and offered the names of other IRS officials who were at the October meeting with Weiss. And while it's true that it's normal for prosecutors and investigators to disagree on what charges to bring, it's extremely rare that such a dispute would lead agents to file formal whistleblower complaints in Congress and the Department of the Treasury's Inspector General's office. Ziegler, who just happens to be a self-described gay Democrat, spoke for many Americans when he said no one should be above the law, regardless of your political affiliation. So do the disclosures about the FBI and the IRS prove that some kind of deep state acted as a shield for Hunter Biden's derelictions and tax crimes? Not exactly, but it's true that the FBI has lost a lot of its legitimacy with the Republican Party. But the key reason why the Bureau has been exposed 
is because of other individuals who would surely count as part of a so-called deep state. For example, the Justice Department's Inspector General at the end of 2019 issued a devastating report that destroyed the defenses made for the FBI's application to spy on a Trump campaign aide by the name of Carter Page and ruin his life. Ziegler and Shapley are investigators for the agency of the U.S. government that collects federal income taxes, which is the textbook definition of deep state actors. And yet, they pursued Hunter's crimes without fear or favor, even as others tried to stop them. Eventually, Ziegler and Shapley blew the whistle, and Congress now has an opportunity to hold the prosecutors who went easy on the president's son accountable for what they've done. See, stories like Russiagate and the Hunter Biden affair play into the paranoid underbelly of a deep state. These scandals are proof that the system itself is rigged. And yet, the events of the past week prove that thanks to honorable people like Shapley and Ziegler, maybe the system is kind of working. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.